I want to start out by reminding you of a song, which I'm a little sad about because what Jenny just did was amazing and beautiful, but now I'm going to sing a little song for you, so sorry about that. But <laughs> I wonder if you know this song. I've got joy down in my heart. Do you know it? Deep, deep down in my heart. It's got actions, right? J-O-Y. You all know this? You did this at camp? No? You don't know it? Oh. It's fun. Down in my heart, deep, deep down in my heart, sing it. I've got joy down in my heart, deep, deep down in my heart, J-O-Y, down in my heart, deep, deep down in my heart. All right, we'll practice later. It's okay. Now, I know that is not a Christmas song. It's not a Christmas song, but that little chorus tells us a really important truth about joy. Where does it live? It lives deep, deep down in our hearts. J-O-Y, real, lasting joy. It's just like Barb was talking about. It's not a fleeting or a flashing feeling. It's something deep. It doesn't just come from momentary happiness or a burst of surprise. Those are fun. Those are great. But that's not the foundation of joy. Joy, real, God-given joy, comes from things that last. And it's an abiding feeling. It's a resilient feeling deep, deep down in our hearts. And not just in our individual hearts. Joy is also is a deep feeling, but it's also a wide feeling. Okay, it's expansive. It doesn't stay narrow and confined. It's expanding. It's so big, in fact, that on a day like today, on Christmas Day, it covers the whole world. Joy is for the whole world. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing. I wonder, does that sound at all to you like scripture? Maybe a little like a psalm? How about Psalm 98? Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. If we hear any resonance between the carol and joy to the world and that Psalm 98, that was on purpose because <laughs> the composer Isaac Watts used Psalm 98 as his inspiration when he wrote this popular hymn in the early 18th century. Now, Watts, he was a poet and a clergyman, so it's not surprised that he wrote a song that stood the test of time. You know that we've been looking here at Christmas, at the message of Christmas through the lens of different carols. And today, Christmas Day, we have the most triumphant carol of all, which is appropriate today because today is the day that we celebrate the triumph of God, the triumph of God's love, the inextinguishable power of the light in the darkness and the joy that it brings us. So, Joy to the World, Isaac Watts. He composed the words we know, but not the tune, right? Like many of the songs, or most of the songs we've uh, considered, the words came from someone and the tune from someone else. The particular tune for Joy to the World uh, came sort of from George Frederick Handel, right? Handel's great work, The Messiah, uh, he wrote, but then another composer in England picked out little melody pieces from it and stitched them together into one song. At the time, that was considered a great way to honor music. Great and beautiful music was to steal little parts of it. 
If you tried to do that today to sample, like you'd get taken to court, right? You'd get sued if you did that. Anyway, in the day, it was fine. And so another tune was created, but then it took another musician, a guy in Boston named Lowell Mason, who published an arrangement of Handel's melodies, including the melody that we sing today, attached it to Watts' text, and finally, after all these hands and all these iterations, we have the carol that we've sung for our whole lives, Joy to the World. I discovered in researching this that you can sing Joy to the World to other tunes, including the tune for O Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. And vice versa, you can sing O Four Thousand Tongues to Sing to Joy to the World. So you have to repeat, you know, the last part. Anyway, don't do it right now, but try it later. It's I've been having fun this week doing that. Okay. That's preacher fun, I guess. Okay. So this is how the hymn got to us. But it's not, of course, what makes us love it. Not at all. I love knowing that part of the inspiration for the hymn was Psalm 98 because it does remind me of the Psalms and how it says praising God is something the whole world does. Let heaven and nature sing. Let heaven and nature sing. It's kind of like the psalmist that says the heavens are telling the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. The goodness of God is so good. It's so good that every part of the earth sings God's praise. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns, let all their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. This news of Jesus born to save us, it's cause for global rejoicing, and it's a song that starts here on Christmas Day, but it has no end. Our song of praise to God starts because of Jesus' birth. It's a song above all else, a song of joy, a joy that's so deep it sits at the foundation of our hearts, a joy that's so wide it encompasses the whole world, a a song of joy that resonated out far beyond the manger as well. And the gospel writer Luke, he actually reminds us of this by including in his story two characters that are often forgotten. To see them, we have to consider what Mary and Joseph actually did after baby Jesus was born. Now, according to Luke, Mary and Joseph, they did not just pack up quickly and leave Bethlehem. Eight days after Jesus was born, they did what all Jewish families do. They had their baby circumcised, uh, and then they officially named him on that day. In this case, they named him Jesus, Luke tells us. Forty days later, then, it was time for Mary to offer something for her purification after giving birth, and so they went to Jerusalem. They were likely still in Bethlehem at this point because Jerusalem was a lot closer to there and it was actually on their way home to Nazareth. It would have made no sense to walk up to Nazareth north and then back to Jerusalem with a six-week-old baby. So they went to Jerusalem and presented Jesus to God in the temple because he was the first son of the family, right? He was the firstborn son. And because of that, just like everything else that people had, he was considered part of the first fruits And so he was given to God. This is the difference maybe between Jewish families in the ancient Near East and us. We tend to pay all our bills and then give to God out of what's left. They did the opposite. They gave to God first. The first grain from the field. The first olives from the trees. The first lamb from the spring birthing season. The first son consecrated to God. Trusting God would bless them then with many, many more. So Mary and Joseph presented Jesus to God in the temple, and then they probably paid five shekels so they could redeem him and take him home, not leaving him there. Well, So they honored God with a gift of the child, and then they had to offer a sacrifice uh, for Mary to mark the period of her impurity being over. And what the scripture says they gave, this is they gave two turtle doves. 
to pigeons, in other words. This is another sign to us about how poor they were. If they were not poor, they would have offered a lamb in sacrifice. But the scripture made allowance for people who couldn't afford a lamb, and so they offered two birds. So that's what Mary and Joseph are doing in Jerusalem. Very normal things for first century Jewish parents. Any couple with their first baby would have done the same thing. Except any couple with their first baby would not have received the same reception that Mary and Joseph did. When these two characters that we hardly ever talk about in the Christmas story show up and see them and their baby. And that's Simeon and Anna. Simeon and Anna. Both of them were faithful Israelites and they were waiting for the promises of God to be completed. They were waiting for the restoration of their nation. They were devout people. They had lived their lives to God. And both Anna and Simeon, when they, when they saw baby Jesus, they realized that their hopes had been fulfilled, that a Savior, a Redeemer, a Messiah had come. And both Simeon and Anna, upon seeing the baby, took the chance to scoop that baby up and to sing a song of praise to God. You have probably done something similar, I'm guessing, when you see a new baby for the first time, right? Maybe a grandbaby or a, a baby of a cousin or of a dear friend. I mean, how long did it take you once the parents arrived at that baby for you to take that baby into your arms? Just remember the joy that you felt when the one that you had waited for for so long with such anticipation was finally here. So Simeon, he sings a song of praise to God. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. So what he's actually saying is joy to the whole world, both for Gentiles and Jews, this Savior has come. And then Anna, that we heard about in what Mark read today. She sees the baby, and she knows that he too is the fulfillment of God's promises to redeem the world. She sees him in the temple, and she realizes the hope for which she has waited her whole life has come to pass. So both Simeon and Anna, they are a reminder to us of the depth and the breadth of what God has done in Jesus. He's the fulfillment of our longings, our yearnings for what the world should be. He brings the fullness of God's love to earth, for all the earth, for every part of the world. So in response, every part of the world is to lift up its heart in song and praise to God. Now my hope for you, for all of you this Christmas, is that you have joy in really big ways. That you have a house full of people, or you have a table full of food, or you have fun that... Uh, makes memories of a lifetime like skating in the basement. I mean, that sounds fantastic. But I also know that that's not everyone's story. That's not everyone's family. So if your family and your Christmas does not include all the elements that we might find in a Hallmark movie, I want you to know that there is still tremendous joy on offer today. A joy that's so much deeper and so much wider than even what the best meal and the most amazing presence can bring us. Because the joy of Christmas, it comes from the gift of Jesus, and that is a gift for the whole world. And that means that the joy of Jesus, if we let it, it can invade every nook and cranny of our lives. It can push through any kind of circumstance, and it can appear in unexpected places and unexpected ways. It is a joy that's able to touch all kinds of people and bring real change to lives. The joy of Jesus come to be with us is a joy, honestly, it's a joy that's unstoppable. It's a joy that can pervade the whole world. 
So I have two stories that I want to share with you about this Christmas joy in unexpected places to help us kind of tune our eyes and tune our ears to see joy, even if it's not big and flashy. The first story comes from NPR a few years ago, and it says that in Richmond Hills, New York, Jose Moran spent Tuesday morning setting up the nativity scene at the Holy Child Jesus Church, where he is the custodian. Mr. Moran put up the manger and went to lunch, and when he came back about 1 p.m., he heard the cry of a baby. The baby was in the manger, swaddled in blue towels. He was so young, his umbilical cord still sprouted from his belly. Jose Moran ran to tell Father Christopher Ryan uh, Haney, who has been ordained for only five months. Imagine being a new priest and being told there's a live baby in your manger right now. So Father Haney, he called 911. The baby boy was brought to the hospital where he was weighed just over five pounds and found to be healthy. Surveillance video reportedly shows a young woman enter the church with a baby in her arms but leave without a child. Now in New York, like in a lot of states, there's a safe haven law and it permits parents to leave their infant someplace safe, like a hospital or a firehouse or a church, without being charged with child abandonment. It opens a door for, in the law for parents who feel burdened or overwhelmed or unable to take care of their child to safely leave them with confidence that they will be found, cared for, and eventually taken in by another family. So Father Haney, he told the news that he only felt love for the mother. He said, a church is a home for those in need, and she felt it in this stable, a place where Jesus will find his home, a home for her child. He said that families in the parish were already asking in that first few days to adopt the baby. They feel that he was left in the parish and he should stay in the parish. The Queens District Attorney said the woman who left her child in the manger has been located and interviewed. And she apparently returned to the church the next day to see that her baby had been found and she won't be charged. So imagine it, the love of a mother who felt she couldn't care for her child to bring him someplace safe and warm, that her instinct was to put him in the manger. I love that. A baby finding a safe home just hours after his birth, being enveloped in love by this congregation from the very start. It is unexpected and unstoppable joy. The second story was told to me by a friend of mine who was serving a church in a college town. The story about a young woman, a college student who attended my friend's church named Emily, and Emily's mother's an alcoholic. And during college, Emily came to realize the depth of her mother's addiction, and so she confronted her mother, and she asked her mother to consider treatment, and her mother was furious and basically disowned her because of it. Now, Emily was a college student, a terrible time to lose parental support. So at my friend's church, one of their ministries was to connect college students to families in the congregation, and families were asked to be mentors and friends to the students during the school year. When Emily's mentor family found out she was completely broke and cut off from her mother, they offered to let her live with them while she finished her last year of school. Because Emily's mother wasn't speaking to her, Emily also spent Christmas with her mentor family. And on Christmas Eve at the 11 o'clock worship service, Emily helped the pastor serve communion. And after worship, they were cleaning up. And my friend, she asked Emily, how, how are you doing being so far away from your family during the holiday? And Emily said, I know I should be sad, 
but there's still joy, Pastor. I have a coat for the first time. My mentor family gave me a coat. I've never had one before, not ever, and I have a coat this year. You just said that Christmas Eve makes us remember God is with us. Well, I know it. I have a coat. This woman was 21 years old, and she'd never had a coat. But because of church, because of this ministry of mentoring, because of the generosity of this family, Emily had a coat and a safe place to live and a family to surround her, and she had unexpected, unstoppable joy. Joy. I want to invite you today to just take a moment to savor the joy. If it's big and flashy and full and loud, wonderful. But even if it's not, take a moment to look closely and carefully and ask God to help you see joy even in unexpected places and unexpected ways today. Because God has come to bring joy to the world, a joy that is without end. Thanks be to God. Amen.